As the kids are making their way out, you can open your Bible up to Daniel chapter 9. The the song that we just sang, His Mercy is More, sort of uh, encapsulates or captures well the the spirit of, uh, of this passage in the sense that uh, as we'll see here in a minute, we'll, we'll read. Um, the, Daniel's prayer on behalf of himself and the nation uh, in light of their sin and the Lord's discipline is just brutally honest in terms of how miserable and how, uh, how much failure uh, the people have on their account. And yet, every time I come to this, come to this passage, even though it is just, I mean, just chock full of sin and disobedience and twistedness and wickedness, my heart sings when I read this passage because for all the blackness, the darkness that you have because of the sin of God's people, Daniel comes back over and over again and says, but here's what God did, here's who God is, he's faithful, he's compassionate, he's merciful. And so there's a way, I think, in Scripture um, that fully acknowledging our sin and our need for forgiveness and compassion actually gives us more motivation, more uh, spirit, more oomph. That's a theological term, oomph. In our, in our singing, because the more we see ourselves as we truly are in light of God's holiness, the more magnificent and the more awesome and attractive God appears. And so that's what we're wanting to do today in, uh, in this passage in Daniel's prayer, uh, which we'll read in a minute. I, we want to see how Daniel deals with or addresses the sins of the people, but not in such a way that it, it becomes sort of this, um, this exercise in introspection where you're just examining yourself and you're throwing up all the faults and all the sins of which there are many, but there needs to be a way in which a full accounting of our sin drives us to who God is in his very nature and his character, what it is that God has done for us in offering up his son on our behalf. So before we start, let me just read to you uh, a a little prayer. If you would just quietly bow your heads, use this as a time of reflection just to uh, set our minds and hearts in the right place before we turn to scripture. It is a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but you are my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins. For sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that God is not angry with them. Let me not take other good men as my example and think I am good because I am like them For all good men are not so good as you desire, are not always consistent, do not always follow holiness, 
Do not feel eternal good and sore affliction. Show me how to know when a thing is evil, which I think is right and good. How to know when it is lawful, how to know when what is lawful comes from an evil principle, such as desire for reputation or wealth by greed and theft. Give me grace to recall my needs, my lack of knowing your will in Scripture, of wisdom to guide others, of daily repentance, want of which keeps you at bay, of the spirit of prayer, having words without love, of zeal for your glory, seeking my own ends, of joy in you and your will of love to others. And let me not lay my line too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. Father, we ask now that you would do what only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would take your words revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, that you would give us a right understanding and appreciation for the things that we see and hear. We ask that you would help us to take this truth on faith, knowing that it does accurately reflect who you are and who we are, sinners, but sinners redeemed by grace. Give us the ability, Father, to recognize that in the midst of sin, grace abounds all the more. I pray that while we are instructed in the ways of confession, that it would not be to the point of despair, but that rather the confession of our sins would produce a harvest of praise as we marvel in new and fresh ways at how merciful and compassionate you are to us. Thank you that in spite of our constant sins and failures, in spite of our weakness, that you continue to condescend, you continue to show compassion to us because we have been bound to your name and your reputation in our union with Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that seals us in that work of salvation and prepares us for that righteousness that will be ours in the day to come. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 19. I'm going to read the entire passage and then we're going to uh, go back and just try to hit on a couple key points that, um, that we see here. In, uh, in Daniel 9, one of the things that is going on, the, uh, the first three verses, Daniel has uh, been spending some time in Scripture, Jeremiah specifically, he says. In Jeremiah, he sees where the Lord has uh, had indicated that there would be a period of 70 years for his people to be punished for their sin. Daniel seems to think, we don't know what kind of accounting he uses in this, but Daniel seems to be of the impression that that 70-year period is nearing its end. And so as a result, Daniel is moved, is compelled to pray in light of this backdrop of God's judgment and discipline on the sin of his people, but also God's promise of forgiveness and restoration. And so this is how Daniel prays. 
Daniel 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is to this very day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, even though we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. So as we, uh, we said just a few moments ago, one of the things that's striking about this prayer of confession that Daniel uh, offers up that we have here is that it's a confession that sings. It has all of the minor notes that come with sin and disobedience and judgment and discipline. 
but it has all the major keys that complement and in the end far outweigh because of God's compassion and mercy, because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness. And so as we go through here, just three points that we wanna bring out, hopefully to, to provide something of or to take from Daniel here, something of a model of what confession looks like how it's done, and also the effect that it should have on us as the people of God. And just, just so you know, a lot of times it's easy to kind of shrug some of this off because this is Old Testament stuff, right? We're New Testament people, not Old Testament. It's, it's Old, Old Testament, right? The Old Testament, though, makes up two-thirds of the Bible, And if you don't consider the ways in which God's character and his disposition and his dealings with his people are revealed in the Old Testament, you'll actually fall short. You'll have a stunted view of how God deals with his people in the New Testament. God does not suddenly change when he moves from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. He's not one God in 39 books and then another God in 27. This is who God was when Daniel prayed. This is who God was when he sent his son. This is who God is now. I take it then, as we get started, that one of these uh, old guys way back in church history said that when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, calls people to repent, he means for them to repent for a lifetime. And then that same man on his, uh, on his deathbed scrawled out, we are beggars, this is true. Those two bookends, that the Christian life is one of constant repentance, constant confession, because we recognize our sin, and yet constant confidence in the grace and mercy of God to cover our sins and to reconcile us to him, even as he makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. So, number one. One of the things that you have to see right off the bat in the opening paragraph of Daniel's prayer in verses four through six is that Daniel confesses the guilt of his people and God's faithfulness. So if we were just to try to make the transition from Daniel to us, we would just say something as simple as confess your guilt and his faithfulness. Notice notice what Daniel does when he opens up this prayer on the confession or the confessing of guilt. In verse five, you have no less than five different verbs that Daniel uses to state or describe the guilt of God's people. So look at verse five. Daniel says, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly, we have rebelled, 
We have turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. All of those statements, all of those verbs bring a little bit of a different nuance or slant to the picture. So let me, just for example, let me, the first two. When Daniel says, we have sinned and we have committed iniquity, the general idea of sin is the idea of missing the mark, just in sort of a, a, a very broad, nondescript sort of way. It's God saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and yet you may love your neighbor, but not as much as what you love yourself, right? That's falling short. That's missing the mark. It's God saying, walk this way, but you veer to the left or to the right. You miss the mark. You miss the destination that God has laid out for you. And then just on the second one, it's not just that we miss the mark. We have committed iniquity. Iniquity has the idea of twistedness. So we have, we have done things that are twisted or perverse. It's not just simply that we miss the mark, but the good things that God has given, we take them and we twist them and we corrupt them into evil, wicked things. Or we take desires that in and of themselves are good gifts. And by abuse or mishandling or by selfishness, we turn those good desires into evil, corrupt things. We are twisted people in our nature and in our flesh. But then Daniel one-ups himself. He, try, he, he covers everything, right? There's no pretty picture that you can get here of the people. And then he adds on top of that in verse six. Moreover, in addition to all of these different kinds of sin and, act of, and acts of rebellion and wickedness and missing the mark. In addition to all of this, we have not listened when you called to us through your prophets. Bad enough that you sin as aggressively as completely, as deeply as what Daniel is saying he and the people have sinned. It's stunning, though, to see, for, to see that Daniel says, and on top of the depth of our sin, when you called to us, when you invited us back, when you warned us, we just totally ignored you and continued on our way. So, Understand, this is Daniel asking for God to do something for him and his people, right? The, the whole point in this confession is to get to the end, the, the last paragraph, starting around verses 15 through 19, to ask God to do something. This is not the way that we're used to starting off when we're going to make a big ask, right? Teenager goes to goes to mom and dad to ask for a favor. Mom and dad, before I ask you to do something that would benefit me, let me tell you how rotten I am. You saw that I've done A, B, C. What you didn't see is that I've also done D, E, and F. Now, will you, or the art of the deal, right? You come in, you lead with your best foot forward, your best offer, 
and then you sort of whittle your way down to making a compromise? Where, where does Daniel have to go from here? There's no best foot forward. There's no putting a, a positive spin on this. Right out of the gate, Daniel essentially presents himself and the people as those who are completely unworthy to get whatever it is that he's gonna ask God for. But you'll also notice before Daniel even gets to the sin in verse five, you can't miss the way that he describes God in verse four. God, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Why should Daniel expect any good thing to come from this confession? It's not because of anything that Daniel has to offer or the people have to offer. It's all because of who God is and the very essence of his nature and character. God is a great and awesome God and by nature, on a regular basis, he shows himself to be faithful to all the promises that he has made, even when his people show themselves to be unfaithful. See, Daniel could have said, he could have opened the prayer up with, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who punishes the sins of his people. It would be true. It would be what Daniel and the people are experiencing right now, but it doesn't get to the heart of what, da of what Daniel is wanting to ask for, which is compassion and mercy. By the way, where does Daniel get this idea even that after all of this sin and disobedience, that all he has to do is turn and go and ask God to show favor and kindness? Is he hoping against hope? Daniel, you, you may have a cross-reference or a footnote. Daniel is actually quoting scripture when he opens this prayer up. I think we have it that we can put it on the screen. Specifically, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 7.9. Deuteronomy 7.9, and this sounds awfully familiar to what Daniel says in 9.4. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness. Do you see that? That's what Daniel says. He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Listen, people, this, this is why scripture is so important. When Daniel turns to the Lord to confess his sin and the sins of his people and is asking for God to do an act of kindness or mercy, Daniel is not hoping against hope that God is going to listen and hear. Daniel does not have to guess as to whether or not the Lord is predisposed to be kind or predisposed to be vengeful. In fact, everything that Daniel has encountered and experienced would actually push him in the opposite direction. When you're weighed down and burdened with all this sin, usually the last thing that we instinctively or naturally want to do is go approach a holy God. 
right? I don't wanna do that. I know what my guilt and my sin is. And I know that the closer I get to the gaze of God's presence, not only is that guilt exposed, but in his light, I see more clearly just how desperately bad my situation is. But Daniel seems to be of the mind that wherever God's people are by way of experience or life setting, it doesn't change the fact that God has said, this is who I am. I keep my promises. I am faithful. If you come to me, I will turn and I will listen and I will forgive. Listen, people, when you confess your sin, don't hold back on confession. Don't try to pretty it up. Don't try to pull your punches. And what are you going to do anyway? How, how are you going to hide or make your sin look better to the one who sees everything? But you need to have both sides of the equation here where you come and you just lay your sin and its filth and its dirtiness and all the depravity that it is. You lay it out there on the table. You put it in full view and you acknowledge this is sin. This is evil. And then you acknowledge or perhaps like Daniel, before you even acknowledge your sin, you say, no, God, I'm coming to you because you said you keep your promises. So remember that. You, you promised. You said you would keep your promise. Now, here we go. Promise. And you lay it out there on the table. When you're convicted of your sin, don't hide it. Don't try to cover it. Don't try to rationalize it. Put it out there for all its dark ugliness and do so as you claim and as you take on faith that God is going to remain true to you even if you have not remained true to him. Number two. We confess our guilt and his faithfulness it's the only reason we're able to come in the first place is because he's faithful. Number two, as part of that confession, confess his righteousness in all of your wrongs. Confess his righteousness in all of your wrongs. Look what Daniel does in the second paragraph, verses 7 through 14. He gives these little bookends, this little frame. He says in verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. And then if you skip down to the end of verse 14, the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. So don't miss this. Here's what Daniel is doing. By putting, by affirming God's righteousness at the front and at the back end, he's wanting us to understand, okay, everything that comes in here is being held together by this one main thought, which is 
everything that God says, everything that God does is right, no matter what our experience may be. So he begins to go through, and he says, we've disobeyed. We've transgressed. We've violated your law. The things that we have suffered, we're suffering the discipline, the consequences of our sin. It's nothing less than what God said would happen if we turned away from Him. So one of the things that has to be done when you look at the act of confession is you can't try to shift blame or try to put some of this burden on God. Well, God, if you had done such and such, or if you had intervened this way or that way, I wouldn't be in the mess that I'm in. Not true. Everything that God does is right, is good, and is perfect. You and I do not sin because God has let us down. You and I do not sin because we lack something that God has withheld from us. We sin because we give in to temptation. We sin because of the weakness of our flesh. We sin because we take our eyes off of the beauty of Christ and put it on the passing beauty of other things. And you've got these warnings all through Scripture, even in the New Testament. James, for example, says that when lust is conceived in James 1, right? Let no one say when he's tempted, he's being tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone, and he himself can't be tempted. But each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own desire. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, And when sin has been perfected, it brings death. When you and I experience the breakdown of relationships because of sin, we are experiencing exactly what God said would happen when we sin. Relationships die because sin kills. Joy is stolen because sin kills joy. And all of the difficulties, all of the consequences, all of the discomfort that we encounter, even that, though, is a mark, is a sign of God's goodness and faithfulness to us. Look at these verses, all from Psalm 119. We'll put it up on the screen here for you. Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. It's exactly what Daniel is doing in this part of the prayer. He's saying, for all of the suffering and all of the hardship that our sin has brought, it is not due to any fault with God. Look also 
Down at verse 13. Just an interesting, interesting statement. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Daniel seems to imply that all of this could have been avoided if we had listened, if we had paid attention, and if we had turned when God was calling to us. So Proverbs tells us that it's not the mere confession of sin that enables us to find compassion, but it's the one who confesses and forsakes his sin that finds compassion. All right, let me, let me pause here just for a second. Let me give two reasons why maybe we don't confess more often and turn from our sin. One, I mean, it should be obvious, a lot of times we just, we love our sin too much, Right? We, we, are, we are that desperately weak in our flesh, on our own, that I, I can love sin. I can get pleasure out of sin. All right, but for some of us, though, there are times in which it's not necessarily that we love the sin or that we're trying to cling to it, but there are still other obstacles or things that might prevent us from turning to the Lord, to making this bold confession, calling out for His mercy, Listen to what C.S. Lewis says as he was reflecting on prayer. He says, suppose I pray that you may be given grace to withstand your besetting sin. Well, all the work has to be done by God and you. If I pray against my own besetting sin, there will be work for me. One sometimes fights shy of admitting an act to be sin for this very reason. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? The reason that we don't confess our sin more often is because we know that with confession, there needs to come a turning. And I simply don't want to fight sin. It's too hard. It's exhausting. It's uncomfortable. And so I'll pray for everyone and his uncle, cousin, second, twice removed. I'll pray for their sin and I'll pray that God would build them up and strengthen them. But not nearly enough do I pray and confess my own sin because I'm intimidated by the battle that lays on the other side of that confession. Or some of you are kept from confessing your sin because You're afraid that after confessing that sin, what's going to happen is that you're just going to fall right back into it again. And what's the point of confessing if it's just going to be this endless loop, right? So I confess this sin, I walk away from it, and then I trip and I fall back in it again. So I confess it again, I walk, I trip, I fall. And you think God is not going to be pleased with that. He's not going to tolerate that. You're misunderstanding the heart and the nature of God towards his people. 
picture, picture a parent with a young child who's learning how to walk. The child is learning how to walk, and he's also starting to make connections with his parents as mom and dad, I like them. They're good. They give me food. They pick me up. They carry me. They write all these good things. The difficulty, though, is that the, the, the kid is, is just learning how to walk. He can't always get to mom and dad the way that he would want. His parents are looking. Parents are looking at little Junior here, and they prop him up, and they take a step back, and they, they tell him to come, and he comes, and he falls down. Does the parent look at that child and say, I thought you loved me. I thought for sure you were gonna come here and let me pick you up and hold you and sing to you, and re- but it's obvious you're pathetic. Of course not. That parent sees that the face of the child is turned towards them And even with falling flat on his face, do you know what the parent does? The parent goes and he picks up the kid again. And he faces the child and he calls him. Again and again and again. That's what God does with us in our frequent failures and our sins. God is not looking down on his children for the sake of condemning them or pounding them into dust under the weight of self-condemnation and guilt. But like Daniel says here, the problem is that we did not turn and we did not give attention to the Lord or to his word. If the father looks on his children and finds that their faces are turned towards him, he smiles on them. You should not let the frequency or the repetition of your sin dissuade you from calling out to your father for help. You should not let your weakness and your stumbles trick you into thinking that your father only has time for you when you reach perfection. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame, that we're dust. Number three. Confess the rightness of his forgiveness. This is probably, for me, this is probably the most staggering part of the whole prayer. Confess the rightness of his forgiveness. All right, so remember we said in verse seven and 14, you've got these two bookends where Daniel is saying both at the start and at the close of that paragraph, that second paragraph, whatever it is that we, that we conclude, whatever it is that we explain or confess, here's what we need to understand. All of our experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, is framed by this one pervasive truth that God is right in all that he does. Now, 
in that, in that paragraph, that seven through 14 paragraph, the rightness of God is displayed or demonstrated in his discipline on his people. It was right for God to discipline. It was right for God to allow them to experience the consequences of their sin. God was right when he did that. He was not wrong. Now, here's how Daniel seemingly turns that on its head. In verse 16... O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts. What righteous acts? What righteous acts are he, is, is Daniel referring to? All the righteous acts that he's just talked about in verses 7 through 14. Just like you were right to discipline, you were right to judge, you were right to punish, you were right to make us uncomfortable, you were right to make us miserable. In line with all of those right things that you did, Daniel says, now the right thing to do, God, is to forgive. Does that make anyone uncomfortable? To tell God that what is right for him to do now is to forgive his people, to be merciful to them. Remember who, who Daniel has said he is along with the people. They're riddled with sin and with disobedience. They're twisted. They've missed the mark. They rebel. And now Daniel acknowledges all that and he turns at the end and as he's closing out his prayer, he says, now after all of the right things that you've done to discipline us, now the right thing for you to do, God, is to be kind, compassionate, and to forgive us. That's gutsy, isn't it? Where does Daniel... Get the nerve to tell God that it is right for him to forgive. He gets it from God. Because God is the one who said about himself, I keep my covenant and my loving kindness for those who love me, for those who pay attention to my word. Later in Deuteronomy in chapter 30, the Lord is telling Moses and that first generation of Israelites or that second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, he said, there's coming a time when even though I've warned you about all of the consequences of sin, you're going to be punished, you're gonna be disciplined and up to the, the last measure of discipline, which is you're gonna be kicked out of the land and taken into a foreign nation. But when you remember, when you call these things to mind, and you turn back to me, I will come and I'll take you from there and I'll bring you back to myself. In other words, the reason that Daniel can say it is right for God to forgive what seems to be an unforgivable people is because God has promised to forgive. Daniel is telling God no less than what God has said of himself. So in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just or and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you hear what John is saying there? If we confess sin 
as an act of faithfulness and because it is right, God will forgive his people. And ultimately, God forgives his people because of the covenant that he has made in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. God can no more go back on a promise to us than he can go back on a promise to his own son. And so is our faithful, merciful, sympathetic high priest who has given us all of these good promises of continued love and faithfulness and forgiveness as he sees us in our weakness, he doesn't despise us. He doesn't cast us aside. He actually is drawn to us in our time of need. Listen to this great quote from Thomas Goodwin. An old pastor hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He says, speaking about the sympathy that Christ has for a weak people, he says, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that has leprosy, he hates not the member, for it is his flesh but the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected all the more. Do you hear that? As a child that is riddled with sickness and weakness, that is being strengthened and made new, and yet is still fighting off the infectious disease that we call sin, every time you turn to Christ, every time you turn to the Father and show him another part of the scan of your heart that shows sickness and corruption, your father is drawn to you in mercy and in compassion. He wants to heal you. And the last thing that we ought to add to this is this other realization. Turn to, turn to John 17. We'll end here. The impression that you get in Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 is that Daniel has taken it upon himself to pray in advance for the people, right? In Daniel 9, 1 through 3, he's been uh, been reading. He sees in Jeremiah what God has declared about uh, the punishment that's due to his people, the fact that God is going to return to them. And so Daniel turns and says, that time is coming near. Let me go ahead and now start to pray for the people. The impression that you get, though, is that it's Daniel praying all by himself for an entire nation, which, of course, makes the prayer all the more significant because we're led to believe that Daniel praying for other people is sufficient not just for his own sin, but also for the sin of others. Look at what you have in John 17, verse 20. This is Jesus praying to the Father before he goes to his death. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referring to the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who who is that? That's us. That's us. 
Jesus is a far better prayer than Daniel is. His prayers are far more effective than what Daniel's ever were. Daniel is praying within the scope of his own personal experience, looking back in hindsight. Jesus here, before he goes to his death to buy our forgiveness, to pay for it, Jesus looks down the corridors of time and says, I'm praying for every single person that's going to be seated in Edgewood Baptist Church on November 17th. I'm praying, I'm asking, before they take their first breath, before they turn to confess under the conviction of their own sin, I'm praying that all of these things that I am paying to secure for them, I'm praying that it's gonna be made good for them when the time comes. You better confess. You have a wealth of riches and promises in Christ waiting for you that have been stored up for you before you were even born. Christ is waiting to give it to you will give it to you, joyfully, gladly. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you give us a spirit of right confession, a spirit that sees our sin for what it is and all of its ugliness, in all of its depravity, its twistedness. And yet seeing that sin with the eyes of faith, would those eyes quickly be turned to the cross at Calvary where we find forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation? Father, may the confession of our sin on a regular basis be the means by which you bring restoration and healing and joy to our wounded spirits. May it be the way that you bring greater humility to us and the ability to reach out with love and compassion on others who are sinful just as we are. Give us, Father, a greater confidence in your grace than in the depth of our sin. Thank you that having been promised freedom from the penalty of sin, even now we are tasting that breaking of the power of sin and that one day, one day, we will be removed even from the very presence of sin. In the meantime, may we set our eyes on you and all of the promises that have been made good to us through your Son and through the working of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.